Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anybody says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said and they let him go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Uh, so we're going through the gospel of, of, of Mark uh, this, this year. Uh, we started in February, and incidentally, we're going to finish up, like the gospel of Mark finishes with the story of the resurrection, and we'll actually finish uh, on Easter Sunday. And so we'll obviously take a break for Christmas time, and then uh, uh, do a little uh, a, a sermon series on prayer in January. Uh, but we've been in the gospel of Mark for most of this year. And we established early on that when John Mark, the author of this book, wrote the Gospel of Mark, his goal was to settle once and for all, for all of us, who the real and authentic Jesus really is. Who the real Jesus is. And so when we started working our way through the Gospel of Mark, we said that, you know, we're going to look at it, we're going to look at this book through, through sort of that same lens. We're going to look at it through that same lens, seeking to really understand and comprehend who Jesus really is. To see what he's done and to consider why he matters more than anyone else in, in all of history and even today. In chapter 11, chapter 11, the chapter that we're in this morning is really this huge sort of turning point for us. Because in chapter 11, what, what's happened is the people, they're starting to get who he is. They're starting to get who Jesus is, that he's not just God in the flesh, but he's the great king of kings, that he's a king who serves by giving up his life. He's a unique kind of king, a servant king, the kind of king who exchanges his throne for a cross in the service of sinners like you and me. And that is the part of the story 
His, his, the days leading up to his death and resurrection, that part of the story is the day that we'll, are, are, the, are the, is the part that we'll actually be in for the next few months. You see, chapter 11 is when the very last days of Jesus begins. The whole next six chapters is about his death and resurrection. What you think about it is pretty fascinating, right? It's fascinating because the first 10 chapters that we've been talking about covers three years Three years of Jesus' life and ministry, over 10 chapters that we've done so far. And so the next six chapters are about his death and resurrection. So just a little bit less than half of this book is about his, his death, his last days. Now, normally, a biography will give you like one chapter on a person's death, right? They'll give you like one chapter on the end of that person's life. Uh, just recently, I, I turned 35 yesterday, and so every, every, every year, uh, like around the time of my birthday, like I, I revisit like one of my, my favorite uh, biographies. Sometimes I'll read the whole thing, sometimes I'll just look at some of my favorite highlights, but it's this biography on Robert Murray McShane who's this 19th century like Scottish Presbyterian minister. And I was, I was looking through it the other day, and, 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 it, and it struck me. You know, there are like several chapters about his life and about his ministry and about his family. Uh, and then just only the last chapter is on his death. Uh, he died at like 33 years old or something like that. Um, made a huge impact in the Church of Scotland. And so that, that, that's always been uh, challenging for me and inspiring for me. But the, only the last chapter talks about his sickness and, and his death. But Jesus' biography in the Gospel of Mark, you've got six chapters on the days that are surrounding his death. Now, why did the author, why did Mark dedicate so much ink to, this, to, the, to these days? And of course, it's because of the weight and the importance of those days. Remember, we're trying to cut through all the assumptions that we and people tend to make about who Jesus is to get to the real and authentic historic Jesus. And if you really want to understand who Jesus is, if you really want to understand sort of the key to what he's done, then you need to understand his death and resurrection. It is central to who he is. And that journey that Jesus has in his last days, the last week of his life, that journey that he spends to the cross begins here now in chapter 11. And we'll be unpacking those days in the next few months. Now, for this morning, I want us to look at three things. I'll give you the, the outline on the front end here. First, we're going to look at his posture, the posture of Jesus. Secondly, we're going to look at his position. And lastly, we're going to look at his power. First, we're going to look at his posture in, in the triumphant entry that he has into Jerusalem, leading to the end of his life. We're going to look at his position in the cleansing of, of the temple, and then his power in this, this strange sort of scene where he sort of curses a tree. And so, first, let's look at his posture. Start reading in verse 1 with me, Mark chapter 11. It says, Now when they, this is Jesus and his disciples, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples. And he said to them, go into the village in front of you. And immediately as you enter it, you will find a, a colt, which is a small horse or, or a small donkey, uh, tied up on which no one has ever sat. And then he, sa it says, uh, he says to them, untie it, untie that colt and bring it. 
And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Now, if you picture this scene, it's pretty awesome, right? It's like Jesus is basically saying, like, hey, if anyone asks you, like, dude, why are you stealing my car? Say, the Lord needs it. (laughs) Just tell him, the Lord needs it, but he'll bring it back right? Like, I mean, we don't know. Jesus could have actually arranged to pick up this cult earlier. We actually don't know, but it's just kind of a fascinating scene. He says, like, go find this cult, grab it, and if anyone asks you, just say, the Lord needs it. Um, Continue in verse 4 with me. And then it says, they went away and found a cult tied at a door outside in the street, just like Jesus said, and so they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the cult? And they told them what Jesus had said, and so they let them go. Verse 7, and they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road. This is coming into Jerusalem here. Many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which is sort of a word of praise, a word of worship. They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So now, what's going on here? What's going on here? You see, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised Jewish king from the line of David, and he's riding into Jerusalem, which is the great city of God. And so the whole scene here is just almost like pregnant with anticipation and excitement, right? They're coming up over, they're, they're through, it they says they're going through Bethpage, like up, up through this desert path. And when you go through that path and you, and you reach the top of the hill, uh, you, you're passing through like miles and miles of desert. But when you get to the top of this mountain, uh, 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 like I, I'm, I'm told when you get to the top of there, you start to see vegetation for the first time. And the vegetation is almost like anticipating what you're about to see next. And then you get to the top of the mountain, and then you look over, and then you see just the, 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 the city of Jerusalem in all its splendor and in all of its glory. And this season that they're coming in happens to be the Passover season which was for Jewish people a really big deal. It was a time that they celebrated freedom and victory. Now, at the time, the Jews weren't the ones in, in, in charge. The Roman government was sort of oppressing them, and so, but they would celebrate the Passover season as a way to hearken back to, man, remember the days that God freed us. Remember when he delivered us, and they look forward to the day when he would finally deliver them through the Messiah. And here comes Jesus, the one who's been performing miracles, the one who's considered the son of David because he's from the lineage of David. He's the king of kings. He's God in the flesh. They've heard about him, and so they're lining up the streets. People are laying down their cloaks. They're spreading down branches, like on Palm Palm Sunday. That's where that comes from. And this is the kind of thing that you did for royalty because they saw Jesus as king. You see, the road, the reason they would do that with the cloaks and the branches is because the roads were covered with 
dust and with grime and with animal turds, right? Like just all over the place on the roads, embedded in the roads, these dirt roads. And so in order to show great honor to royalty, whenever they ride into town, people would take off like their swag, lay, lay their, quotes in, their, their, their coats in, in, in the road and throw branches on the ground, which is sort of, on the one hand, it's a practical way to keep the ground clean for the royalty, but on the other hand, it's also ceremonial, it was kind of like when you throw like confetti and streamers at a party to celebrate. It was celebratory. It was the kind of thing that they would only did that like you wouldn't do that for anybody. You would only do that back then for a king. And that's why they're singing and shouting out Hosanna. Hosanna, that praise word. Blessed is he, blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom now of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They shout out and they sing. Now Mark, when he writes this, he wants us, the way he's describing this with the road coming up to Jerusalem, with the cloaks and the branches, he really wants us to get to the point that this is a day of celebration. This is a great welcome party. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is being hailed as a king, not just any king, but the king, the creator king, the king who would bring the hope and freedom that every Passover before had pointed to, the rightful king of the Jews. This was his royal reception. But there's one surprising sort of jarring detail here in this, in this verse that, that Mark really kind of uh, emphasizes. One small detail that God wants to sort of draw our attention to in this text is that Christ the king, the great king, the king, he isn't riding in on some big decorated war horse like kings normally would, but he rode in on, on a colt. The Greek word is polos. It means like colt, like a baby horse or a small donkey. And so here's Jesus. You got a picture. I mean, this welcoming wagon comes out. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the city of God. He's the great king of kings who has proven his deity, his identity. He's, he's proven who he is, uh, that he's the one who holds miraculous power. The one who has the power to, over, to redeem from sin, to overturn the effects of sickness and death. The one who's the source of all truth, all goodness, all beauty, the way, the truth, and the life. This Jesus is coming in and he's riding in on an animal that's really more fit for a hobbit than a man of royal victory. You see, Jesus here is purposefully showing, and Mark wants us to get this point, that Jesus contains both majesty, as we've seen in the last 10 chapters, but also meekness. Both power, but mercy and humility. You see, there's a prophecy in Zechariah 9 about this event. I want you to read it in from the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, it says, uh, in, in, in chapter 9, verse 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. O Israel, Jerusalem, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, so Jesus here is in some sense saying, I'm this king that was prophesied of, but I'm not the kind of king that fits into the world's categories. I'm not the kind of king that fits into the world's categories of what a king is, of what power and authority looks like. He's saying, no, I bring together both majesty and meekness. You see, Jesus is so much, but he transcends the categories that we think in. He doesn't set aside his majesty to put on meekness. He's the majestic one who is also meek. He's the holy one who is also humble. And that's what I want you to see about his posture is that his posture, his royal posture is humble in the truest sense of that word. That's why in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, Jesus is described as both being like a lion and a lamb. He's the lion-like king and the lamb-like sacrifice. He's the one who comes roaring, bold with authority, but he's also the one who lays his life down. I found a sermon this week, an old sermon from Jonathan Edwards on Revelation, uh, on Revela- the verses in Revelation that talk about the lion and the lamb. And, and I love the way that, that Jonathan Edwards uh, breaks, breaks this down. And he, he says... Uh, he expounds on this point, and he says, a lion, he says, if you think about it, a lion excels in strength and in the majesty of his appearance and voice. A lamb excels in meekness and his sacrifice for human clothing and food. But Jesus Christ is, is both, because the diverse excellencies of both lion and lamb are wonderfully met in him. Indeed, there is in Jesus Christ a conjunction of such truly diverse excellencies as otherwise would be utterly incompatible in the same subject. There do meet in Christ infinite highness and infinite accessibility, infinite justice, yet infinite grace, infinite glory, yet infinite humility, infinite majesty, infinite transcendent meekness, absolute sovereignty, yet perfect submission, infinite all-sufficiency in himself, yet entire trust and dependence on God. He is a lion and he's a lamb. He's a rock. He's a pearl. He's a mighty captain. He's a tender lover. He's a fragile flower and he's a mighty tree of life. In other words, Jonathan Edwards is saying Jesus breaks all categories that us measly humans could ever come up with for what the Son of God should look like, for what a true king would be like. He combines traits that naturally seem contradictory. And that, that's just the way of Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. He's better than the assumptions we make about him. He's bigger than the boxes we place him in. He's more beautiful than the things we assume about him. Even though he's God and king, his posture is still humble. So that's our first point. His posture is, his royal posture is humble. Secondly, I want us to consider his position. 
We see these in the next several verses, his position. In these next verses, we learn something about his position, both the position that he holds in history, but also the position that he holds throughout the, just the whole Bible story. And then we'll, let's, uh, let's skip a few verses ahead and start reading about that in verse 15. It says, they, again, this is Jesus and his disciples, they came to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, he entered the temple, the temple of worship, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the, the temple. And he was teaching them, and he was saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, this scene is pretty intense, right? Pretty, pretty intense here. Like sometimes it's referred to, uh, this, 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 like in your Bible might be referred to as the cleansing of the temple. You might see that heading in, in your Bible. Jesus cleanses the temple. And that's because Jesus, you know, he sort of went wreck it Ralph on the temple courts, right? To, to rid it or to cleanse it of all that was not honoring to God. That's why it's called the cleansing of the temple. So why does Jesus react this way? Why does he get so angry here in the temple courts? What got his blood boiling to the point that he starts flipping tables over? Now, if you want to get, if you want to understand and get to the root of his righteous anger here, then you need to know that this was the place, this, this place in the temple, the outer courts, was the place where Gentiles, those who were not Jews, those who were on the outside religiously, this is where Gentiles were supposed to find God, on those outer courts. And that's where they were supposed to worship and to pray to God. That's where they were supposed to meet him. That's why Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what was supposed to be happening here. So it's helpful to picture it like this, right? There's this inner part, inner part of the temple where God's people worshiped in Jerusalem. There's this inner part of the temple that only the high priest who brought in the sacrifice, had access to. That's where those sacrifices were made. And then the, there's this next layer. So think of like concentric layers. There's another layer out where other priests and, and religious authorities could have access. And then the next layer was sort of like for the common Jews, for the non-priests. So it was still for God's people, Israel, uh, but, it, but it was for the, the common people, not, not the religious elite. And then the farthest layer out was where the courts were. The courts of the Gentiles, it was called. That's where the non-Jews hung out. Many of them were not believers on the outside. They didn't know God, but they came to the temple with their curiosities. They came with their questions. Like they were curious through the Jews about this concept of sin and forgiveness and mercy. And so this outer temple court is a place where they would be drawn to where evangelism would happen. That's where evangelism would happen in the temple area was on that outer court. And so you can kind of look at it, think of it like a concert, right? Like you have the area that the band's allowed to go to, like on stage or backstage, right? And then the VIPs, they're allowed to go backstage too. But then there's the pit area where you can be right up front, right, if you pay an extra buck. And then, and then you have the stadium seats in the back, right? So like that's the Gentile courts, where the unbelievers are supposed to be invited in so that they can get sort of introduced to the music for the first time, where they can get invited in to get introduced to, to, to God and his people. But at this moment, in Mark 11, at this moment, when Jesus entered the temple, he saw something else entirely going on. 
He saw something else entirely going on. Rather than foreigners being welcomed in to pray and to fill up those stadium seats, he saw, Jesus saw thousands and thousands of people crammed into these court areas for almost like this commercialized swap meat farmer's market, right? They're selling like sacrifices and animals and pigeons and things like that. This uh, early first century uh, historian named Josephus wrote that around that time, you'd have like 25,000 lambs on any one given day. 25,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed there. It's a lot of lamb, right? A lot of gyros. You know in the movies, like those open outcry floor trading scenes, like the New York Stock Exchange where it's like really loud and people are shouting and pushing each other out of the way, sort of like this perpetual like mosh pit. Like the temple area on the outer courts, it was like that. When Jesus walked in, he didn't see foreigners being welcomed in. He, he, saw, he saw a scene that looked like that plus some, right? He saw a scene that looked like that, but you add thousands more people, thousands more animals, and that's the scene that he walks into. And Jesus gets angry because this is offensive to God and his mission for that temple. This was offensive to God. This wasn't the purpose of the temple. This wasn't the mission of the outer course of the temple. So, so Jesus comes in and he starts flipping tables over in anger, starts making space to get rid of this injustice, which, by the way, tells us that Christianity isn't just about being nice right? Like sometimes if you love people, like the Bible calls us to, to love God and love people, sometimes if you love people, you're also going to hate injustice. Sometimes you might get angry, like some of us here, like we might get angry too easily or for unjust reasons, but here Jesus has a righteous anger, a righteous anger against injustice. And the people, they're coming over saying, like, Jesus, like, what are you doing? Like, what's going Why are you flipping tables over? Why are you doing this? And Jesus explains in verse 17, read it with me. He says, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you, he says, this is an indictment against them, the people in the temple. He says, you have made it a den of robbers. You want to know what's so radical about his response? You want to know what about his response right here made people in verse 18 just astonished, it says? It's because his response reveals his position in the whole matter. That his position is one of judge. His position is judge. You see, he's not just the king He's not just a humble king, but he's also the, the judge. Look, I know this is not like sort of a, 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 a popular, palatable topic to, to talk about, like in this day and age, especially like in Western Christianity, but I mean, it's in the scriptures, right? Like Jesus is judge. And here, he as judge is judging what is right in temple worship, he has the power to judge whether the right things are happening in the temple, in the outer courts. You see, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament come down in the flesh. The righteous one, the holy one, the magnificent one, the one who was so holy and brilliant and magnificent that when Moses came down from the mountain after meeting with him, his face was shining like the sun. That God, that holy and unapproachable God was, was, 
was come, has come down in the flesh in Jesus Christ, the only man who can rightfully judge what goes on in the temple. You see, and in here, we kind of see the lionness of Jesus again, right? We see the lion and the lamb in Jesus again. He comes in like a lion to drive out the filthy beasts. He's standing in judgment against all that is wrong in the temple. But a few days later, he's going to be in the same vicinity offering his life like a lamb. You see, the temple was ultimately, with, with the way that it was set up and the way that it invited people in, the temple was supposed to set the stage ultimately for Jesus' death and resurrection. That was the whole point of the temple. That was the whole point of the sacrificial system. It was to point people forward to Jesus who's here now, who rode in on the foal of a donkey. You see, in the Old Testament, the temple was supposed to symbolize God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the whole world. But the way that these temple workers were doing things, it no longer served as an invitation to the nations, but as a barrier to them. And that's why Jesus is angry. That's why he's livid. That's why he's tossing tables. You see, evangelism and hospitality towards the outsiders was supposed to be happening on those outer courts. They were supposed to be saying, come to the temple. Like, come to our church. Come eat with us. Kind of like how we do hospitality today. Right? We, when we say, like, come over, let us get to know you, like, just to love you and serve you, answer the questions that you have about Jesus, right? Like, when we do hospitality, that's what, that's what was supposed to be happening in those outer courts. But instead of hospitality and evangelism happening, we see business and commerce and nationalism that pushed the foreigners outside and only kept the insiders in. All that, 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 that dirtiness was happening. Instead of inviting people in, people were being left out. It was an ungodly and greedy mess. The temple was supposed to be God's dwelling with Israel for the sake of the whole world, for the sake of the nations. And see, like King's Cross, if this is your, if this is your church home, like I want you to see, like this is why we do what we do today, right? Like, this is why we gather, because we want to invite people in. We want them to taste what we've tasted. We want them to see what we see, to experience what we experience in Jesus Christ. That's why we do what we do, why we gather, why we give, why we serve. It's so that we can be the light of Christ to those who don't see, who still don't see. We don't charge at the door. We don't make it hard to get in or to park. We try to, the best we can, make it easy because we want to invite people in. And, man, I just want to say, like, I, I love, I love, 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 but just your guys' generosity and your guys' sacrifice and the way that you guys serve. I don't think, like, for, for those of you that have been coming just, uh, uh, you, you know, maybe, like, for the last few months, like, I don't think you realize, like, how many people it takes to really, like, put on Sunday morning worship between uh, the, the band and the setup and teardown team and the child workers outside and the hospitality teams and, and uh, you know, just uh, the ushers and, and everything that goes, goes, goes on both here and out there, people that bring coffee, like, week in and, and week out. Like, no one gets paid to do those things, Right? Like, no one gets paid to do those things. We do it out of sacrifice. They do it out of generosity. 
And I mean, like, even before we started having worship gatherings, like, there was a group of people that met in our living room for week after week after week just to pray and to plan and to seek God's will for, like, this church, like, before, as we were preparing to, to plant it and to start it, all right? So many teams that, involve it, that, that are involved in, in, in helping us, like, put together this, this service of worship and this community that meets throughout the week, Last week, uh, I, I, told, I, I told you guys, like, during the announcements about, you know, some of the financial needs that we had. I mentioned that, you know, we had to come up with uh, $4,000 by end of year uh, to, to, to meet some of, like, our, our, our special, like, sort of uh, immediate needs uh, and some increase in our monthly giving. And, uh, like, later, later that day, like, our, uh, we, we had, like, up to uh, $800 just, like, by, by midnight on, on, on Sunday from, from people who were just generally giving their, their resources. And our, our monthly giving went, went up by $300. We, we were reading off of a piece of paper last week because our, uh, we, we had sort of like a, a setup and tear down mishap. Our, our TV was, was broken. And then a family from the church like literally bought a new TV, a bigger TV on Amazon like during the service. And then after the service today, we've got like another, an, an, another gentleman who's going to build like basically a fortress around this TV in, in, in the truck. Uh, to make sure that doesn't happen again. And you see, look, why do we do this? Why do we serve in this way? Why do we give in this way? It's because that's what we do as believers. That's what we do as missionaries. That's what we do as, as advocates, as Christians. We worship God through Jesus Christ, and then we invite others to worship him with us. As those who know him, we also want to make him known. We're not elitists who stand in the center and look down at those on the margins. We're humble beggars showing other people where to find the bread that we found. Did you know that there's like actually other churches and other Christians who week after week and month after month, they also give their money and resources to help support like King's Cross? Like as a new church plant, Who's, we're starting out, like, they say it could take you, like, anywhere from three to five years to be financially sustainable. And so there's churches and even some individual families who have said, hey, we believe in what you're doing. Like, people who are in other states, churches that are in the inner city in, in Boston and in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the Chicago area, who are, 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 are sending us, uh, you know, funds to, to help us get started until we can be financially sustainable, right? Like, who does that? Why do, we, why do they do that? Because they believe in this mission. They believe in the mission of the church. The original mission of the temple and the mission of the local church today, they believe in the mission of King's Cross Church to make disciples through church planting. You see, followers of Jesus, they gladly give their time and resources to help people meet the God of the Bible through the power of the Spirit and the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we do it. That's why we do this. We give and we serve because we follow the one who's given his life. And we want to be like him. He makes us like him. We serve because he first served us. You see, that's the position that Jesus has. He has the position to be the rightful judge on what true worship looks like. What true community looks like what the real mission of the church that we should be giving ourselves to is. And that's why he got angry in those outer courts. Now lastly, we've, we've already looked at his, uh, his posture, his position. I want us to look at now his power. 
I want you to look at the power, the unique power that Jesus has. I want you to see how Jesus has power to reform our hearts to be who God calls us to be. Now, by way of preface, these last verses we're going to look at on the surface contain like one of the weirdest moments in Jesus' story. Like he curses a fig tree, all right? Now, to understand the meaning of this, you need to know, like this scene, you need to know that Mark is using a literary device that we've seen one other time in the Gospel of Mark so far. He's using a literary device here called a Markin sandwich. That's what like, theologians and commentators call it. I know this sounds boring, but just track with me, all right? This is important. He uses a Markin sandwich where he folds one story into another. And in a Markin sandwich, each story helps us understand the other word. And so in other words, the story of the fig tree sort of wraps around this story of the temple where Jesus was throwing the tables over. That story is wrapped around with the story of the fig tree. The middle story of the temple that we just read is the real meat of the story. And the story on the outside, the story of the fig tree, is almost like the bread. It's there to add special insight to the story in the middle. Does that make sense? Okay. So now let's read the verses that are on the outside, wrapping up the, 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 the temple story. Uh, go, go back now to verse 12. Read verse 12 through 14 with me. It says, on the following day, this is the day after Jesus wrote in, uh, when they came from Bethany, uh, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree that was in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then the next several verses, we have the story of the temple, and then he finishes the story of the fig tree in verse 20. Read that with me, verse 20 and 21. It says, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Now, what is going on, right? Like, with, with just a quick surface reading of, like, these verses, things don't look, like, super great for Jesus, right? It's kind of an odd text. Like, first, he's talking to a tree. Then he gets a little hangry, right? And then he curses this tree for not bearing fruit when verse 13 tells us that it wasn't even in season for bearing fruit. So what's going on? Like a lot of people get stuck on this. Even Bible commentators will get stuck on this. Like did Jesus just wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Did he like skip his morning coffee? Like the answer, of course, is, is no. Jesus would never skip his morning coffee. Right? <laughs> but really the answer is, is no. Like what he's doing here is he's acting out. He's physically acting out a parable not to deal, not to deal specifically with the fruit of the tree, but to make a point about the fruit of our hearts. All right? He's not trying to make a point about the fruit of the tree, but he's using this tree to make, a, to make a point about our hearts. He's not making a point about some random tree. He's using that tree to make a point about us. Now, you need to understand that middle, in, in back then in the Middle East, which is where this was taking place, fig trees back then in that day bore two kinds of fruit. All right? Two kinds of fruit came from fig trees. In the spring, when leaves start to come up, 
Like the leaves came first and the fig, fig fruit grew later. But at first, when the leaves first start come up, even before the fig fruit starts to grow, the branches would have these little nubs on them around the leaves. So it's like not actual fig fruit, but those nubs were still good to, to eat, right? I mean, if eating something called a nub is something that you're okay with, then you could eat that, right? Now, if you're a desert traveler, like Jesus and his disciples were, you would pick at these little nubs and eat them for food. But if you found a fig tree that had leaves, which should, a tree with leaves should always have nubs with it. If you found a fig tree that, that had leaves but no nubs, you would know that something was wrong with that tree. You would know that it was diseased, that it was rotting on the inside. You see, and when Mark is writing this, this is an ancient agrarian culture. So like everyone was in some sense a subsistence farmer, right? So in an ancient agrarian culture, like this is common knowledge. Leaves on a fig tree without fruit was a sign of decay. Everyone knew this. So when Peter, who's always like Captain Obvious, says the tree is dead, I want you to see how Jesus responds to, to his disciples, to Peter and his disciples. Verse 22, Jesus answered them. He says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you for your sins, for your trespasses. Now, remember, this whole story is sandwiched around the temple story. Remember? It's sandwiched around the temple story. And so this fig tree story is a physical parable to teach them something about the temple scene. He's teaching his disciples a lesson about hollow spirituality, hollow religion, hollow spirituality. You see, Jesus found this fig tree not doing what it was supposed to be doing. It wasn't bearing nubs. It wasn't bearing fruits. Where else did Jesus find something not doing what it was supposed to be doing? Just a few verses earlier, right? In the temple. When he entered the temple, he didn't see what God told them to, ha to have happening in the outer courts of the temple. No, he noticed a lot of busyness. A lot of busyness, which is not unlike many churches today. A lot of people, a lot of production, a lot of activity, a lot of noise, a lot of transactions. And to be clear, there's nothing like inherently wrong with busyness. But in the temple, there was a lot of busyness, but no true spirituality. There was a lot of busyness, a lot of transactions, but the purpose of it, being inviting to the outsider, being a place of prayer for the nations, was not happening. There was no true spirituality. People weren't worshiping God in the requested way. They weren't in community. They weren't on mission in the way that, that, that God had prescribed. They weren't truly meeting with God in the temple. And it was supposed to be the place of his presence. You see, Jesus is saying, he's saying to them, to his disciples, just like a fig tree that has leaves but doesn't bear fruit, just like that kind of tree is worthless and diseased, so is the temple full of all kinds of activity and flair, but that's missing the very heart of God. 
missing the very presence of God. You see, the problem in the temple is that they were more concerned about doing than they were about being. They were more concerned about doing things for God than they were about being with God and being the kind of people that God called them to be for the nations. They were more distracted by activity than they were delighted in the presence of God in the temple. You see, here's Jesus, and he is what the the Bible calls elsewhere Emmanuel, which means God with us. We sang a song uh, about this earlier, God with us, God for us. Jesus is the presence of God in the truest and fullest sense. And here he's saying here, by, 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 by the way that he's judging the temple, by the way he's teaching them with a fig tree about true spiritual, like inner spirituality, Jesus is making a point that, that look, he is the ultimate priest. He's the high priest. He is the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. He is the ultimate temple. He makes our lives the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus was a changing the whole game. He was changing their whole identity. He was showing them that all the points of the temples and, 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 and the prophets and the priests of the Old Testament was to point forward to him. Hebrews tells us, as the great prophet, as the high priest, as the king of kings. That's why we don't have temples today the way they did in the Old Testament. That's why we don't have high priests today the way they did in the Old Testament. That's why we don't make those kinds of sacrifices today the way they did in the Old Old Testament. It's obsolete. New covenant. There's a new way. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. The whole point of all those things in the Old Testament was to point forward to him. And here he is right there in front of them. And Jesus is telling them, you guys have missed the point. You look great and shiny on the outside, but inside you've missed the point. Inside you're dead. And you're bearing no real fruit. You see, the spirit of God that is used to shake mountains, he says in verse 23, can shape and form you to look like more like Jesus from the inside out. So that you're not just busy on the outside, but that you belong to him, truly. You belong to him from the inside out. You see, that is the power that Jesus has. His power, I want us to see in this, is pervasive. His power is pervasive. It transforms all of us from the inside out. You see, some of us need to hear that God wants more from you. He wants more from us, more from you than just coming to church and singing songs. He wants more than just joining a group or serving on a team. Now, he doesn't want less than that, but he wants, he ultimately wants more than that. He wants something deeper than that. He first wants your heart. If he doesn't first have your heart, then those other things don't matter. He wants you to put your faith in him. He's not interested in, re- in, in, a religion, uh, in a religious but empty life. He wants you to live like you believe that God can do the impossible. 
Do you truly know the one who is great and majestic and meek, the one who is holy and humble, that you truly know him, that you truly experience his power, that whatever your immovable mountain is, that he could take care of that. Whatever your immovable mountain is this morning, whether that's like an addiction or anxiety, depression and shame, your maybe a financial situation, a job situation, your health, your relationship, or just some deep pain that you're experiencing or have been walking with. Jesus is saying, would you just come to him with these things? Would you just come to Jesus with those things? Would you just truly trust him with your heart? with your life, with what's really going on with you. When is the last time that you stopped to consider what is really going on with me in my heart? What is really going on in my relationship with the Lord? When was the last time that you, you had that conversation with, with another person here, here, here in the church, a brother or sister in Christ, where you just talk about, hey, look, here's, here's what's really going on in my life. What's really going on in my heart? You see, Jesus is the king unlike any other. He's the high priest unlike any other. With a salvation that plunges the depths of our souls unlike anything else. He's not the kind of king, that, that, like the kind of royalty that the world is used to even back then in the days of monarchs. But he's the kind of king that we need, that we truly need deep down inside. Like, are you ready to follow this king? Are you ready to follow this king even when it's hard or when you get ridiculed for it? Are you ready to submit to his will even though in the middle, even when you're in the middle of hurt or heartache or some trial? Are you ready to go out of your way to honor him, to willingly lay down your cloak or your, anything else in your life that you're holding on to, to lay it down before him and to welcome him in? He's not just the kingly lion. He's a self-giving lamb. He goes into the temple to claim it as his own house just so he can lay down his own life. Not in the temple as a sacrifice there, but on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice. Where he was lifted up to be ridiculed, shamed, where he would bleed to death. Why? So that he would not only move the mountain of sin and death that hovers over us, that shadows over us, but so that he would just flatten it all together. So that he would destroy it all together. And he does all of this just so that we can be saved by him to truly enjoy him, to be, to let him make us the people he wants us to be, to know him and to join him now in making him known. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.